calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Shadowcraft. The flyer sat on the kitchen counter for nearly a month before my parents finally made the time to take me. Come to the Straniac Estate, it said. The greatest pumpkin patch in the state of Utah. The letters were orange and bold, and went on to mention cotton candy, a corn maze, and even a free petting zoo. On the lower half of the flyer, there was a little map showing where the pumpkin patch would be in proximity to the other parts of the park. It showed the parking lot on the bottom, just to the south of the picnic area. On the west side, the petting zoo and other attractions gave way to the open fields that held the corn maze. And just to the northeast was the pumpkin patch, as indicated by the ghoulish little drawings of jack-o'-lanterns. Above that, at the top of a hill, was the sculpture garden. It was a pretty elaborate event, especially for the small town of Garnett. But it didn't surprise me, even as a child, to see that such an event would be held at the Straniac Estate. Also called the Straniac Parkland and Sculpture Garden, it seemed to me like the only place in town where anything interesting ever happened. I had driven by it, had seen it off in the hills from the back seat of the car, and I had heard about events and gatherings and parties that had been thrown there, but I had never been to the Straniac estate. When I asked them, my parents said simply that it wasn't a kid's park. It's just a bunch of weird statues on a grassy hillside, my mom would say. I imagine my parents' refusal to bring me there only amplified my interest in the place. I found it all the more intriguing because I was never allowed to go. But I was on my best behavior that October, giving my parents consistent and not-so-subtle reminders about the pumpkin patch. 
When I finally convinced them to take me, it was the third week of October. It was late in the afternoon on a weekday, and the sky was gray. It was one of those autumn days where the sun seems all ready to be setting at two in the afternoon. I was, nevertheless, excited to finally be going. We climbed into my dad's plum-colored sedan and made the short drive across town. When our car exited the highway, my dad guided us along a narrow gravel road. We passed under an arch that straddled the road, bearing iron letters that read, Straniac. Out the window, I could see a wide field that grew hilly towards the horizon, its surface textured with knee-high grass that billowed in the breeze. After a few minutes, that narrow lane opened up into a gravel parking lot, revealing the Straniac estate in all its glory. The property was large and dotted with trees, but much of it was simply open grassland. I was surprised to learn that, despite it being named the Straniac Estate, there were no houses on the property. Whoever this Straniac figure was, they must have lived somewhere else. There was a dozen or so cars in the parking lot, and a dozen or so corresponding families moving about, between the funnel cake stand and the petting zoo and the other little attractions. My dad parked the car and we got out. I took my mom by the hand and the three of us walked over to the pumpkin patch. It was illuminated by strings of hanging lights, the dusty bulbs glowing brightly in the dim evening air. Stacks of hay bales were set in neat, even lines, organizing the hillside into rows so visitors didn't have to trample through the pumpkins to pick one out. Late as it was in the pumpkin-picking season, there wasn't much to choose from. In the picture on the flyer, the rows were packed with hearty orange pumpkins. But now those same rows were just littered with reject pumpkins, oblong monstrosities with bruises and splits. We perused the aisles for a while, digging through the leftover remnants of the pumpkin patch, and eventually we managed to find a decent pumpkin. It was blemished, rough and brown in one area, but my mom assured me that we would carve the jack-o'-lantern's face on the opposing side, so passing trick-or-treaters wouldn't see the bruise. It wasn't a very big pumpkin, maybe the size of a volleyball, but it felt huge and awkward in my little ten-year-old hands, so my mom offered to carry it to the checkout stand for me. Our search had taken us to the far edge of the hillside, up next to the sculpture garden, and as we walked back to pay for our pumpkin, I turned to look, curious about the statues that my mom had referred to as weird. I could only see a couple of the statues, as most of them were obscured by the hedges that lined the garden. But when I saw them, I realized why my parents had been hesitant to bring me there. One statue appeared to be a furious mother, holding a stillborn child up to the sky, her mouth agape as she cries out the dead infant dangling by one leg. Another statue was of a soldier, seated with his rifle sticking up between his legs. The tip of the barrel is pressed to his forehead, and the soldier's brains are exploding through the back of his skull. His helmet lies uselessly at his feet. A third statue consisted not of one figure, but of three. Two healthy adults, a man and a woman, 
are guiding a skeletal, elderly figure down a stairway that leads underground. The figure, abhorrently thin and sick-looking, was clearly meant to be descending into their grave. That much I understood even then. Oh, buddy, my mom said suddenly. Come on, don't look at those. She handed my dad the pumpkin and then grabbed me and turned me away from the statues. I knew this would happen, she said, turning to my dad. He's all freaked out by those creepy statues. I realized only when she said this that the statues had had such an effect on me. I'd been staring at them, transfixed by the sculptures, horrified by the gruesomeness of the installation. But I didn't want my parents to think I was so easily upset. If I'd shown weakness then, it would be the type of thing they'd use against me next time I asked if I could watch a scary movie. I'm fine, I assured my mom. It's okay. She looked me over skeptically and tousled my hair. Then she nodded and we resumed walking along the sidewalk that led to the checkout stand. I wanted to steal another look back at the statues, dreadful as they were, but I didn't want to set my mom off again so I just kept my eyes ahead and continued walking. The sidewalk was wide and the three of us walked together. I was on the left, my mom was in the middle, and my dad was on the right, still carrying the pumpkin. We followed the winding sidewalk as it led us down the side of the hill. At one point, while we were walking along a fairly open and well-lit section of the park, I looked over at my mom from the corner of my eye. Something about the thoughtless glance took me by surprise, and after a moment I realized what it was. It was my mom walking next to me, but in the space between her and I, someone else was walking as well. I could just see the ends of their long appendages as they swung into view. They seemed tall and emaciated, and their figure was impossibly dark. Startled, I jerked my head up and glanced to the right, but just as quickly the stranger disappeared. All I could see was my mom, and beyond her, my dad, looking over curiously and hugging the pumpkin to his chest. I kept on walking, trying earnestly to keep my parents from seeing how afraid I was. But as soon as I turned back and looked ahead, I could see the stranger creep back into view. Their long legs fell into pace with us as they squeezed into the space between my mom and I. They strode along, somehow silently. I couldn't hear a sound from the stranger. But if I looked over from the corner of my eye, I could see their long, dark arms as they swung with each step. I could see the bottoms of their slender legs, a flash of their wingtip shoes as their stride carried them alongside me. So freakishly nimble and thin was the stranger that they were somehow able to walk just in the narrow space between me and my mom. And yet they did so without touching us. They just weaved and glided through that space between us, their movements fluttery and dance-like. The sight was so impossible, so utterly terrifying and foreign, and yet the stranger seemed so natural walking next to me. Well, maybe natural isn't the right word. It was more like covert. 
as if they knew exactly how to stay undetected, exactly how to keep themselves in my blind spot, offering only a hint of their presence with their long, loping steps, their pendulous arms swinging in and out of my peripheral vision. I didn't understand why my parents hadn't taken issue with the stranger. Could they not see him, just like I couldn't see him when I tried to look straight at him? I couldn't think of any other reason why they wouldn't protest to an odd man walking so close to their son. And then, all at once, the situation became too much for me. My legs locked up. Leave me alone, I cried out, halting in my tracks. My parents looked over at me, confused, as I began to cry. Without saying a word, my mom picked me up and carried me the rest of the way to the checkout stand. I sat sniffling in her lap the whole drive home. That night, as my parents were tucking me into bed, my mom asked, Honey, did the statues at the pumpkin patch scare you? Is that why you screamed? I wanted to tell her that it wasn't the statues that had caused me to cry out. It was the strange, thin man that had been walking in the space between her and I. But I knew that she hadn't seen the stranger and I knew bringing him up would only cause confusion. So instead, I just nodded. I thought so, my mom said. I knew we shouldn't have taken you there. It's not really a kid's park, my dad said, parroting his usual line and trying in his own way to console me. You see, honey, my mom said, sometimes grown-ups make art that's kind of scary, just like they make movies and books that are scary. They make paintings and statues and other things that are scary, too. Some people see the world as a frightening place, my father chimed in. And they make things that reflect what they see. Arthur Straniak, the man that made the park where those statues are, he's one of those people. Does that make sense? my mom asked. I nodded again, pulling my blankets up to my chin. But can statues ever do anything to you? I asked. Can they follow you home or hurt you? No, honey, my parents cooed in unison. And then my mom added, They're just big, lifeless pieces of bronze. I promise. I trusted my mom, and I wanted to believe that what she was telling me was true. But I couldn't deny myself what I'd seen that night. Someone or something, had been walking next to me. I was certain of it. As time passed, though, my certainty faded. I crossed from the wonder of childhood to the pragmatism of maturity, and it became harder for me to believe what I had seen, or, as I came to think of it, what I thought I'd seen. By the time I got to high school, I had resigned myself to the belief that the stranger had been nothing more than a figment of my overactive imagination. I was still vaguely disturbed by the statues at the Straniac estate, though. And, unlike my high school friends who occasionally spent their weekends getting stoned and making out amongst the grotesque statues of the park, I never returned to that place after that October night. The fascination I'd had for it as a child was gone. If you had asked me, I probably just would have told you that the park didn't interest me anymore. 
But the truth, I think, is that I knew there was something wrong about that place even then. When I left Garnett to attend college at the age of 18, I was more than willing to leave my memories of the sculpture garden behind as well. But then, by chance, something brought that place right back into focus. The college I attended was in the town of Gunnison, Colorado. I had a friend that lived there who had a place with a spare room, but it wouldn't be available until midway through my first semester, when the current tenant was set to move out. So I had to find a room to rent for the first few weeks of class. I ended up finding a woman named Lydia, who had a vacant room in her house. She wasn't happy when I told her that I was only planning on staying for a couple weeks. She said that she usually required her tenants to commit to at least six months. But I told her that I would pay her for the whole month up front, and I told her that she could keep the money even if I didn't stay that long. So she let me have the room. To be honest, I think she was just happy to have the extra income. And I was happy because it was still cheaper than living on campus. Lydia's house wasn't the nicest place in town, but it was more than enough to meet my needs. The room next to mine was rented by a guy named Tyler Laporte. I didn't know much about him other than that he had recently been kicked out of a Catholic boarding school and that he made at least some of his money selling occult books online. Something seemed a little off about him, but he was nice enough. Once in a while, we'd drink a few beers and thumb through some of the books in his inventory. He had obscure grimoires, channeled writings from long-dead occultists, anonymous texts that were said to contain curses. It wasn't all stuff that I was particularly interested in, but some of it was pretty wild. One afternoon, Tyler handed me a book called The Lesser Key of Solomon. He told me it was an anonymous grimoire on demonology, that it contained the names and sigils of the 72 demons said to have been evoked by King Solomon. Each sigil, he said, was like a magic symbol that could be used to evoke the corresponding demon. I remember laughing at the concept, thinking the idea of occult rituals and summoning demons to be absurd. But then I turned a page, and one of the sigils caught my eye. It was for the demon called Amon, one of the Grand Marquis of Hell. I stared at the sigil, but I had no idea why it looked so familiar to me. It consisted of two concentric circles, containing the words A-M-O-N, like the four points of a compass. Inside the circle, there was a pair of perpendicular lines, connected at the top and bottom by three rounded points. Contained within each of these points was a letter S, three on the top and three on the bottom. And through the center ran a horizontal line, bisected by what looked like a capital letter I, and ending at an S on each side. My eyes traced the thin black lines that form the symbol. Where had I seen it before? And then, for some reason, the flyer for the pumpkin patch at the Straniac estate popped into my head. I recalled the map of the circular sculpture garden sitting atop the hill. The sculpture garden that was, for some reason, shaped like the sigil of Amon. There's no way, I thought. 
I asked Tyler if I could borrow the book. He nodded and I muttered a brief thanks before taking it back to my room where I pulled out my laptop and typed Straniac Estate into the search bar. I clicked to view the park on a satellite map and zoomed in as far as I could on the hilltop sculpture garden. As the details came into focus, I was horrified to see that I'd been right. The walkways of the sculpture garden were constructed in the exact same shape as the sigil of Amon. The lines of the sidewalks were identical to the line work of the symbol. Even the locations of the statues, all eight of them, were in the exact spots where the letter S appeared on the sigil. I began reading everything I could find online about the park, trying to understand why it had been constructed in the shape of a demonic symbol. I was surprised to realize that I'd never really looked into the place. I'd heard stories about it growing up, but really I knew very little about the history of the park or the life of its founder, Arthur Straniak. On Mr. Straniak, I couldn't find very much. I knew that he'd fought in the Vietnam War and that he was the heir to a mining fortune. But that was about all I could gather online. There was, however, a decent amount of information on the park itself. After it was completed in 1986, as well as in the years that followed, a handful of articles were published about the place. In the first of them, a long piece that detailed the park's unveiling. It was revealed that Arthur Straniak had commissioned the statues from a handful of sculptors around the world. The article detailed each piece individually. It described the three statues that I had seen as a child. Mother Dawn, which is meant to depict the abysmal grief of losing a child. Casualty, a piece about the victims of war that don't die in the battlefield and Eclipse, which symbolizes the painful process of watching one's parents approach their imminent death. Some of the other statues I hadn't seen as a child included Purgatory, a piece on the tragedy of intolerance, which shows an ostracized man pounding a railroad spike into his own chest with a sledgehammer. Another statue was called Foul Work, meant to depict the torture of slavery. It shows a worker plowing a field, while thorny vines reach up from the ground and wrap themselves around his body. The other statues were much the same, grisly depictions of man in the midst of suffering. While Straniak declined to comment on his reasons for installing the statues, he did publish a press release at the time of the park's opening. In it, he said that he hoped people would use the park as a place to reflect on the dark reality of life. He said that he was not trying to be exploitative or provocative, and that the park was not intended as a spooky roadside attraction. It was simply a place for contemplation and acknowledgement, he said. The sculpture garden had been open less than a week when the first petition began to circulate, trying to get the place closed down. Some local parents had taken issue with it, saying the statues were morbid and offensive. Ultimately, there was nothing the petitions could do, though. The sculpture garden was on private property, land owned by Straniak. And even though he made the park open to the public, nobody could dissuade him from displaying the statues. 
In the years that followed, it seemed that the local community remained divided on their support of the park. But the petitions and boycotts faded, and in time the place fell into relative obscurity. In the end, none of the articles answered my question about the park's resemblance to the sigil of Amon. So I began to dig through various internet forms, trying to find out if anyone else had picked up on the park's peculiar design. As far as I could tell, nobody else had made the connection. But my search did reveal something. I discovered that my experience at the park was not unique. There were other reports of shadowy figures stalking the grounds. People claimed to have been followed, claimed to see things of impossible stature out of the corner of their eye. On one local ghost hunting forum, I read the account of someone who claimed their cousin had visited the park. They didn't include the cousin's name, but they said she was female and that she was 17 at the time. She'd gone to the park late on a weeknight with some friends. While she was there, the cousin claimed to have seen a dark hooded figure that had a beak like a raven. The poster said they dismissed their cousin at the time knowing she'd recently experimented with shrooms. Soon, though, they came to regret not taking her seriously. Just three days later, they wrote, she disappeared. I was stricken, because, while I couldn't verify the story, it reminded me of a girl that was a few grades above me. Her name was Mandy Klamath, and she'd gone missing her junior year at the age of 17. I remember hearing talk about her disappearance when I was in middle school, but I never heard anyone associate it with the Straniac estate. I wondered if what she had seen at the park had led to her vanishing, and I wondered if there were others like her, unknown people who had visited the park and seen an untimely fate soon after. I gave the lesser key of Solomon back to Tyler when I moved out of Lydia's house a couple weeks later, but I couldn't stop thinking about the sigil of Amon, and I couldn't stop thinking about Arthur Straniac either. The saga of the nightmare sculpture garden weighed so heavily on me that I struggled to keep passing grades in my classes. I stayed up at night looking at pictures of the place. I combed through the details of local crime logs and missing persons cases. I was convinced that the disappearance of Mandy Klamath, a girl that I'd never even met, mind you, was perpetrated by something within the park. But I had no evidence to back up that claim. I had exhausted every resource I could find online, and still my questions remained unanswered. I began to think that the only way I would uncover the truth behind the sculpture garden would be by talking to Arthur Straniac for myself. So, I set out looking for a way to do just that. I figured a sensible place to begin would be the family business. Straniac and Company was a mining operation located just outside of town. I combed through the company's public records searching for mention of Arthur's phone number, or even his home address. I was unable to find either, but my search did reveal some noteworthy things about the company's history. 
I found out that Straniac and company had struck an enormous mineral deposit in the mid-70s, boosting the company's revenue for nearly a decade. By the time the mine ran dry, it had already made the Straniacs the richest family in Garnett, several times over. Almost as soon as this newfound wealth was acquired, though, Arthur's parents died in a car accident, leaving him as the sole family heir. Not two years later, ground was broken at the parkland and sculpture garden. It seemed odd to me that one of the first things Arthur did with his newly inherited fortune was build a grotesque sculpture garden, and if anything, it just made me want to talk to him more. I tried searching through public databases and scouring the internet, but I couldn't find Mr. Straniac's phone number or address that way either. I was savvy enough to navigate the internet, but I was by no means an experienced investigator or a web sleuth. As my first semester of college drew to a close, I diverted my attention from finding Arthur Straniac to not failing my classes. Thankfully, I managed to cram just enough studying in to pass all my finals. The following week, I went home to Garnett for winter break. As I drove by the Straniac estate on my way into town, I saw the place again enlivened by the terror I'd experienced there as a child. There was something unnerving about the look of the place. It loomed below a flat gray sky, and its rolling hills were blanketed in snow, as if to conceal whatever secrets were buried there. Looking out at the snow-covered park, I suddenly remembered something. In one of the articles published around the opening of the park, Arthur was photographed standing near the entrance, and just behind him, a white Rolls Royce is parked in the lot. The article didn't mention whether the car was his, but I had spent my whole life in Garnett, and that's enough time to know that there aren't many Rolls Royces driving around that small eastern Utah town. When I got home, I had dinner with my parents. I listened to them tell me how they weren't particularly impressed with my grades, but that they understand, that they know it can be stressful as a young person, moving to a new city and starting college, and that they hoped, above all, that I always knew I could talk to them. I nodded and told them that I knew, that I would never hesitate to speak up if I needed to. But I was lying. Because the truth was, I couldn't talk to them. I couldn't tell them that I was trying to find the home of an eccentric local millionaire, that I believed he had built a demonic shrine that was disguised as a park, and that there were shadowy entities there that stalked people and made them disappear. They would think I was crazy. They'd take me to see a doctor. And maybe that's what would have been best for me. But it was inconceivable at the time, so I just smiled and thanked my mom for dinner and went to my room. The next day, I called the local DMV. I told the operator that I had seen a beautiful vintage Rolls-Royce Phantom parked at the supermarket, and that a truck had swung too close to it and knocked off the side mirror. And then, rudely, the driver of the truck had left. I told the operator that I had picked the mirror up off the ground and brought it inside the store, but that I was unable to find its owner. 
and then when I had returned to the parking lot, the Rolls Royce was gone. It would mean so much to me, I told the operator. If she could give me the address of anyone in our small town that drove a white Rolls Royce Phantom, so that I might be able to return their mirror to them. That car is an antique, I told her. It's priceless. She thought for a moment. I'm not really supposed to give out addresses, she said. No personal information at all. There's laws against it. But as it happens, I think I know the man that owns that car. And I'll bet he wants his mirror back. She thought a moment longer, and then she sighed and said, He lives at 11 Pocatello Drive. Thank you, I replied cordially, and then hung up the phone. I looked out the window and watched the sun beginning to set over the snow-capped mountains in the distance. The sky was a darkening mix of purple and pink and burning orange. I wondered if what I was about to do was a sensible thing. A reasonable thing. And then I picked up my car keys and walked out to my car. It was full dark when I arrived at 11 Pocatello Drive. The property was lined with tall fir trees and nestled in the mouth of a shallow canyon. Arthur Straniak's house stood among the tallest trees on the lot. It was at least three stories tall and had a steep sloping roof like an alpine cabin. Extending out from the side of the house was an overhang, under which was parked a white Rolls Royce. Dark panels of reflective windows covered the outside of the house, and even when my car was still approaching the residence, I had the distinct feeling that behind those windows there was a pair of eyes watching me. A pair of eyes that had perhaps even been watching me since before I arrived. I parked my car and got out, began making my way up the long stone driveway. There was a wrought iron fence surrounding the property, terminating at a guard station next to a gate midway up the driveway. There weren't many lights on at the property, but as I got close to the guard station, I was surprised to find it empty. Perhaps, I thought, Mr. Straniak doesn't have 24-hour security at his house. Maybe the guard only mans the station during the day. There was nothing so strange about that, was there? But what was strange was that the gate was bent and ever so slightly open, leaving just enough room for me to squeeze through, which was exactly what I did, and without so much as a second thought. I continued up the driveway, ice crunching beneath the soles of my shoes, and soon I stood on the veranda before a great oak front door. I reached a cold fist out and knocked twice. A moment later, I heard the deadbolt slide, saw the door crack ever so slightly. In the narrow opening, I could see a face, or at least a hint of a face, a strip of a cautious eye, an aging, wrinkled cheek, a loose, flabby neck. What do you want? A faint voice asked. Are you Arthur Straniak? I asked. Why? asked the figure in the doorway. I want to know why the Straniac sculpture garden is shaped like a demonic symbol, I said. 
Through the sliver of open doorway, I could see a smile cutting into Arthur's wrinkled cheek. He opened the door and stepped aside, gesturing for me to come in. He was a slight man, and the years had worn on him. He had looked old in the photos of the opening of the park, but he looked far older then, standing in his entryway, a queer smile on his face. His hair was long and gray. He had a tall, broad nose and a wide chin that poised his teeth in a grimacing underbite. And his skin was so loose and wrinkly it seemed almost at risk of sliding off his bones. I stepped inside his house. It was lavish but dimly lit. A long mahogany table stood in the hallway, just below an ornate chandelier. We can talk in the study, he told me. I followed him into an angular room that looked out at the dark canyon wall outside. It had an elkskin rug and a pair of leather chairs that sat beside a humidor. Arthur offered me a glass of wine as we sat down, but I declined. I noticed that on the far side of the room, a fireplace contained a lively, crackling fire. I couldn't recall if the fire had been lit when I'd walked into the room. I couldn't recall having seen the fireplace at all, in fact. So you want to know about the park? He asked. Yes, I told him. I hadn't experienced there when I was young. I saw something out of the corner of my eye. Then, late last year, I realized that the layout of the park is shaped like the sigil of Amon. I began to wonder why, what you had meant to do with the place. Arthur grinned weakly. To be honest with you, it's hard to recall, he told me. I was a younger man when I built that park. Now I'm hardly a man at all. He smiled perversely as he said this, and in the corners of his mouth I could see a deep, hollow darkness. I always had an interest in demons, in the occult, he went on. As a young man, I was drafted into the Vietnam War. There I saw such senseless violence, such pointless carnage that I began to develop a kind of hatred for humanity. When I got home, two things happened. I became very wealthy, and I became an orphan. I felt like I had everything and nothing, all at the same time. I was furious, confused, I had a desire to create a place that would reflect the world as I had seen it. A place that would depict the tragic reality of our existence. And then I began to think, what if this place could be more than just that? What if this place could not merely be a depiction of the suffering in our world, but a gate to the suffering in worlds beyond ours. I remember reading the Goetia, encountering Amon, and thinking about how dearly I would like to give this Prince of Hell, this commander of forty infernal legions, 
a foothold in this wretched world of ours. Why would you do that? I asked. What if you let something into this world that can't be pushed back out? Arthur smiled feebly. There's nothing wrong with a little shadowcraft, my friend, he said. Our world is rife with evil. Who would even notice if someone opened a door and let a few more demons in? So it worked, I asked. You actually summoned Eamon. Would you like to meet him? Arthur asked. I saw that darkness again at the corners of his mouth. I saw it at the edges of his eyes. It was a darkness that was oddly familiar to me. An empty blackness that had painted the inside of my mind since I was a child. And in a brief moment, I could see that it wasn't just darkness, but an emptiness. A void. As if Arthur's body had been hollowed out and filled with a murky blackness. I already have met him. Haven't I? I said. And with those words, I got to my feet. My knees shook beneath me, but I tried hard not to let it show. I knew, somehow, that if I didn't get out of that house in that moment, I would die there. Just like Arthur Straniak had died there. And just like his security guard and possibly even others had died there as well. The thing that looked like Arthur didn't follow me when I walked out. It just turned and watched me, flaps of skin falling from its face in ribbons, revealing the empty void of a figure beneath. The whole drive home, I struggled to keep my hands steady on the wheel. I was shaking violently. Not only was I petrified, but brutally cold as well. I never told my parents where I'd been or what I'd seen that night. I never told anyone, in fact. Not even when, several days later, it was revealed in the news that Arthur Straniak had been killed. The wealthy recluse had died in his home, killed by an apparent intruder before his corpse was flayed. The corpse, as well as the discarded suit made from its skin, were both found in the house, which investigators said appeared to have been recently occupied, despite the condition of the corpse indicating that Straniak had been dead for over a month. They set up a tip line, encouraged anyone with information to call, but I never said a word, because I knew that nothing I had to say would be seen as an acceptable explanation, even if it was an acceptable explanation to me. I never wondered about why Straniak made the sculpture garden, or whether he had been successful in summoning Eamon after that night, because I finally knew the answers to those questions. Though I don't always think it's better this way. Once you've seen the emptiness of infinity behind the eyes of a man, the universe becomes a place of aimless predation and you can't help but feeling like you're no more than fodder for some unknowable force of consumption. Something that's watching you, biding its time, waiting for the perfect moment to step into your skin 
Hey, uh, if you're still listening, I want to first say thank you. I really, really appreciate everybody that has checked out the show and listened and written to me. Um, I also want to let you know that I have a Patreon. If you sign up for a $3 donation, you get to hear every episode a few days early. And you also get access to my audiobook, Solace. It's over eight hours long. It's kind of a cosmic horror uh, slash thriller mystery. It follows a burned-out journalist that becomes obsessed with an unexplained missing persons case. You can hear the first 30 minutes of the audiobook on the episode titled Solace. And if you like it, definitely check it out. Subscribe. Uh, You can listen to the Patreon feed, obviously, on the Patreon mobile app, or you can listen on whatever podcast app you like. There's a private RSS feed that you can plug into whatever app you use. And uh, yeah, the book is broken up into sections, so it's a little easier to keep track of where you're at. Check it out. It's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. There's also a link in the show notes of this episode and in the bio of the show that you can click on. So yeah, that's all from me. Um, If you enjoy the show, please leave a rating or a review. And yeah, thank you so much. I seriously appreciate you guys. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.